Let them eat cake, said Marie Antoinette when told the peasants had no bread to eat. Isn't that what we're saying to Americans choked by the costs of a broken health care system? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to this special segment on health care policy. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Don Berwick. Dr. Berwick is president and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, or IHI. He is a clinical professor of pediatrics and healthcare policy at the Harvard Medical School. He served on the Institute of Medicine's Governing Council and has been vice chair of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and chair of the National Advisory Council of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Today we are discussing healthcare reform. Welcome, Dr. Berwick, and thanks for taking the time to join us. You're welcome, Bill. Thanks for having me. Everybody's talking about the healthcare system and what's broken about it. How did we get into this mess? I guess fragmentation is a root cause anyway. We built it in silos. We built a system that optimizes pieces but doesn't have a sense of the whole. And the other serious problem, I don't know why it happened in America, it didn't happen in other Western countries, is we never agreed to make healthcare a human right in our country. Uh, I think that's changing now, but that stops us from achieving the universal care that we really ought to have. What gets you the maddest? What frustrates you the most about where we are today? Inequity, injustice. Uh, we have a lot of defects in healthcare, but the biggest one of all is that we have enormous racial and ethnic and socioeconomic gaps, not just in access to care, but in outcomes of care. It's an unjust setup. I don't think it's intentionally so on anyone's part, but it's something we really have to fix. If one of the presidential candidates came to you and said, Don, I know we've got to solve this problem. I'd like you to make some proposals to me. Tell me about your ideal system. I guess my proposal would have two basic components. One's moral and one's technical. The moral component is to commit as a nation, finally at last, to health care as a human right, which no American can be denied, that it comes with the territory of being in our country. The idea that we have children, adults, people on the street who can't have access to care or who have to fear bankruptcy if they go for it is, is a bad feature in a developed country. No other, no other developed country faces that. The moral imperative is universal health care and universal health care coverage in our nation. That cannot be achieved without technical changes, however. It's not just a matter of committing. It's a matter of recreating a health care system that can achieve that at a price that we can and ought to afford. For politicians, I think moral leadership is important, and understanding the technical issues is also deeply important for creating good policy. I'd like to go into that in a little bit more detail. Do we have the resources, especially with this war that's going on? I just read it's going to cost $190 billion next year. Do we still have resources for health care? We have far more resources than we need in health care. Our country is spending now over $2 trillion next year on health care. Per capita, we're approaching, I think, seven dollars or $8,000 per human being in America for health care costs. That bill is double what other Western nations are paying for health care systems that we now know demonstrably perform better than ours. We have the wonderful work of the Commonwealth Fund, which is a constant source of comparative information among nations. And we can see in Western democracies, other than the United States, better health care, better outcomes, better performance than in American health care for half the money. We're a bloated and excessively funded system, given the way we currently structure it. What would you do to reduce the bloat? Or are there programs that have to be curtailed? How would you do it differently? You know, there's really no soundbite answer to that question. That's where the technical side comes in. That's why politicians today aren't yet articulating an answer to that, because it's, it's a tough answer. It doesn't fit in a 30-second commercial. The basic issue, I think, is, is first to understand the nature of waste in healthcare, what it looks like. 
and it appears in many different forms. Unnecessary use of resources, tests, visits, procedures, uh, medications that don't help anybody. We know they don't help anybody scientifically, and yet they're still widely used. We have very strong evidence from probably one of the best healthcare research groups in, in the world, and that's at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, that a lot of this overuse is driven by supply. Basically, if we make it, we use it, even if it doesn't help. And so there's a structural issue here, which is we have oversupply of uh, many forms of health care, and therefore we use it, and we have excess costs with no benefit. Well, doesn't everybody in America feel they're entitled to the latest and greatest? I mean, the, technologically, there are going to be new drugs because pharmaceutical companies make big profits when, you know, when the patent runs out, they come out with something new. The health insurance industry is walking away with billions. I mean, that they paid Bill McGuire $1.5 billion because he stole money from United Healthcare. I mean, what are we going to do to reform these problems? Well, you're putting several problems in the same question. I'm um, sorry. Okay, that's fine. But first, the issue of, of the nature of waste and the latest and the greatest. The problem here is really educational, and both of professionals and the public, and that is first. The latest isn't necessarily the greatest. Indeed, often the latest is worst than the prevailing practice. Simple drugs can do far more often than complex ones can. Uh, simple devices can do more than complicated devices can. Yeah, I still so we, use we amoxicillin to, for treating ear infections. We have to unlearn this uh, love affair with technologies that add very little value, often negative value. I mean, let me give you the data. The Dartmouth Research Group has done amazing work in the Dartmouth Atlas Project, dividing the nation into hospital service areas, and then it can organize the data by quintile of expenditure. The lowest quintile areas in America, the lowest fifth, are spending about $3,000 per capita less for Medicare patients than the highest quintile. So we're looking at maybe $6,000 or $5,000 in the lowest quintile areas and eight or 9000 in the highest quintile areas. <laughs> now, when that group goes and studies quality of care and says, what do you get for the extra 3000 yeah. It's negative value. The high-use areas have lower quality of care, lower access, worse outcomes, lower satisfaction than the, than, than the low-use areas. That really needs to be brought out to the public. So we have to unlearn that. We have a crazy financing system in America. We pay very, very high transaction costs. There's a lot of debate about exactly how much, but we're probably paying administrative costs in the range of 17 to 20 or 22 percent of the total bill. Well, you know, other countries don't do that. The transaction costs England or Sweden or Denmark are much, much lower. They're a single digit percent or less than that. And even in America, where we finally have some programs which are much more centrally funded, like Medicare, uh, we get much lower transaction costs, even though people complain about bureaucracy. It's really a lot cheaper than other systems. I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us for this special provocative segment on healthcare policy. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Don Berwick, President and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and we are discussing healthcare reform. I'd like to move to another problem, and that's prevention. You were chair of an advisory council for the AHRQ. Kenneth Thorpe, professor of public health at Emory University, said, and I quote, most of the national policy discussion on health care is about financing and that reducing preventable illness deserves equal focus. As vice chair is the Preventive Task Force Services, why do we have such a poor job in preventive health? It's really underemphasized in our nation. Again, I don't know historically why, but it's very bad policy. We have to divide the question actually in half, uh, Bill. I, I think we should talk about primary prevention and secondary prevention. Primary prevention or smoking cessation, mm -hmm. uh, reduction of obesity is preventing the causes of, of illness. We are way underinvested in this country. We built, I think partly historically, it relates to the mid-century when we really invested in 
probably for good reason, in hospital and acute care. Medicare originally was a program that guaranteed hospital care, it guaranteed acute care. It never was prevention-oriented. Mm-hmm. So there's a policy environment here. It's silly. I mean, so many behaviors and uh, choices people make in their lives lead to ill health, and those can be prevented. The same goes for violence. Road traffic accidents, for example, are a tremendous problem as domestic violence and other forms of violence. There is a very important point to make here. I don't think there's tremendous evidence that investing more in primary prevention reduces costs. If we prevent the consequences of smoking, you're going to get something else. And so, you know, because we're mortal. So I wouldn't invest in prevention, prime prevention primarily as a cost-saving maneuver. It's just the right thing to do, and we ought to be doing it as a nation. Secondary prevention, preventing complications of illnesses you already have. Now, that's a different story. We really undermanage chronic illness in this country. I think it drives doctors and nurses and patients and families crazy that we don't have continue of care for people with chronic illness, and therefore they deteriorate, they get back in the hospital. You know, readmission rates for congestive heart failure patients from Medicare approach 40% in the first 90 days after discharge, and we know we can reduce that by 80 or 85%. We've seen that in research literature, and yet we don't do it. Now, there is money in that. We can make patients and families better off and save a tremendous amount of money if we focus on better chronic illness care. I mean, that's fascinating. A couple of things I'd like to ask you about. You're obviously very involved with the 100,000 Lives campaign. The National Commission on Preventive Priorities released a report that said five simple steps could save 100,000 lives. And they mentioned two of the things you talked about, smoking cesation, but they also included daily aspirin, colorectal screening, flu vaccination, breast cancer screening. You know, it seems to me that there really is a role for primary prevention, especially with gene therapy. You know, if if we prevent the primary causes, we'll just fix you up with new genes. Well, you're right, absolutely, in terms of what is proper public stewardship and what our public wants. You don't have to have these risks in your life if we work hard on primary prevention. And I think the report is exactly right. I would love to see our nation commit to that. Understand it's very, very difficult to do that in a fragmented healthcare system where we can't remember what screening tests you have had, and also in a system which is currently underinvested in primary care. We're way overinvested in secondary and tertiary care. And yet I think you talk to primary care doctors and nurses today and you'll see the pain they're in because we are underinvested in giving people the medical home they really need. Thomas Friedman wrote a bestseller, The World is Flat. What about healthcare globalization? Americans are going overseas to get treatment for a fraction of the cost here. Is this not maybe part of the solution? Absolutely, yes. Uh, we need what Professor Clay Christensen at Harvard Business School calls disruptive innovations, innovations that really surprise you. We're seeing a couple right now. One are the minute clinics that are, the, you know, the storefront clinics that are emerging in CVS and Walmart and other organizations around the country. These are very controversial, but I welcome them. I think this is going to wake us up to what people really need when they seek primary care. Often, but aren't they is, fragmenting the medical home? No, a lot of them are paying a lot of attention to communication back to the primary care system. Uh, the average number of visits in some of them is one because they want the patient back in the medical home. They're not stupid. They're not going to come in and do something that's going to make them vulnerable. So I think we're going to see this as a constructive innovation when it's correctly executed. And then so-called medical tourism that you're referring to, I'm actually quite excited about that. We know, we can see already that in some of the offshore hospitals in Thailand or India that are taking relatively small numbers of Western patients now, tremendous outcomes, terrific outcomes. These are Joint Commission accredited programs. They strong attention to measurement and outcomes also because they can't afford to screw up. So I think these disruptions will be a bit of a wake-up call. But, you know, in the end, I want to see our core healthcare system do what it ought to do, and I think that these wake-up calls are good, but in the end, we've got to fix the system we have. Is there any way that we can use the overseas travel of patients as a deterrent, you know, to say to our, be it our hospitals, our insurance companies, listen, I'm the primary care doctor. I can send my patient anywhere. I can make a recommendation. What are you going to do to keep them here? 
the role of doctors in achieving what we ought to in American healthcare is potentially absolutely enormous. To get off the dime as a physician, to understand you're today a victim of a broken system, you're not the cause of it, and then to get about the changes that we need enthusiastically to make as doctors in cooperation with nurses and other professionals is really where daylight really lies. Don't resist change. Introduce change. And yes, if medical tourism or even storefront clinics are intriguing to you, go study them, learn from them, build relationships with them. We need a doctor's uh, army in this country that is change-oriented in behalf of better care at lower cost. And I think doctors can really lead there. Of course, they're going to be scared at the start, but I think embracing change is the right way to go. I'd like to thank Dr. Don Berwick for graciously agreeing to be our guest. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to a special segment on healthcare policy reform on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and explore our on-demand and podcast features, which gives you access to our entire program library. Thanks for listening. I wish you good day and good health.